right. How's it going, guys? Yeah, so uh, go ahead and open your Bibles to Philippians 2. It's good to be back with you guys. It's uh, kind of funny. I was just here in June, late June, and uh, already so many new faces that I don't recognize. So, yeah, very exciting. So I just want to pray. I know we've been praying a lot tonight, but let's just uh, pray, and then we'll, we'll jump right in, all right? Lord Jesus, thank you for tonight. Thank you for, yeah, just the gift of salvation, um, what it is, um, who it's for. We know it's for your glory, God, and it's by you that we even have the opportunity to, uh, to join you in heaven one day. God, I just pray for tonight. Would you open our eyes to what scripture is about to reveal, what's, what Paul was emphasizing to the Philippians, that we can also take hold of it as our own today, to understand that a salvation given to those who, who place their faith in Christ. Yet there's more to that, right? Lord, I just pray that we would understand that by the end of the night. We would meditate on these truths that the Bible and your word are about to reflect. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Yeah, so Philippians 2, jumping back into uh, yeah the flow of thought that Robert began last week. We're going to be in verses 12 to 18 tonight. Uh, I'll join you there in a minute, but uh, yeah, continuing flaw, Paul's flow of thought about uh, the humility of Christ and, and his perfect obedience uh, that, that displayed itself at Calvary, and, and not just that, but the authority Christ has over all of creation is, is Paul's flow of thought, but, but one main focus we'll be diving into tonight is this concept of salvation. You might have heard me just pray about it, but, but salvation itself, and not just what it is and, and who it's for, but also what we must do with it. That we're called to work out this salvation for the nearing return of Christ. That's what Paul is about to lay out before us. And, and the big question I want to ask you tonight, that you'll hear me say multiple times throughout this sermon, is when Christ returns like we know he will, like scripture promises, when he returns, how will he be able to differentiate you from a non-believer? How will he be able to differentiate you from a non-believer? So really what distinguishes you from a person that despises Christ? That's the big question. And it seems our generation itself, the college age, 18 to 25 year old, has really just fell into this cycle of cruise control, of of everything we do, we're set at one pace, and that pace isn't really fast, and it's not really in an upward, upward intent, and nothing behind it is really for the kingdom. And it's, it's kind of fallen into what we do with our, with our work ethic, with our relationship investments. It's, it's impacted our, our future outlook on life. And, and tonight, I really want to dive into this because it's even fallen into our relationships with Christ. This, this cruise control mindset, this, this idleness and laziness that has really diluted our culture and even in this ministry. So if you would, look with me tonight at verses 12 to 18 as we see what really differentiates us from non-believers. Paul says, therefore, my beloved, talking to the Philippians, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now... Not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. 
Do all things without grumbling or, just, or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. So have you guys ever been playing with a dog? I'm sure most of you have. And the dog has a toy in its mouth, right? And you have a treat. So you give the dog a treat, they drop the toy, they finish the treat, and then pick the toy back up again. This is really how I feel reading Paul and his Pauline uh, style that he writes with because he'll, he'll start on course uh, and begin this flow of thought that he has and then he'll veer to something close in proximity, right? And then once he's done with that, he'll come back to that, that main objective that he was originally starting, right? And, and you can honestly see this right in chapter 2. Um, in verses 1 to 4 from last week, Paul says, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. And then from there, in verse 5, Paul kind of turns to something else. He turns to the perfect example of obedience first shown by Christ. And he'll continue going down this road until verse 8, where we see Christ laying out the truth that Jesus was perfect in his obedience, even to the point of death, right? And it's not until verse 12 again that we now see Paul relating that perfect obedience of Jesus to our necessity and our need to absolutely be perfect in our obedience to work out our own faith, to work out our own salvation. So again, verse 12 says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So point number one tonight, if you're taking notes, your salvation is not complete. Your salvation is not complete. It's kind of a, a bold statement, right? Well, the Apostle Peter, who was in Jesus' inner circle, actually talked about this in 1 Peter, in uh, his, his, his letter, in chapter 1, he says, to, any to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. An inheritance. Inheritance of salvation that is, that is kept in heaven for you. That's what Peter remarks. And now Paul, we see Paul diving into the same concept, right? This concept known as sanctification. A big word that we use here, which is defined, if you want to write this down, is the ongoing process of being made less sinful and more righteous. Being made less sinful and more righteous. And, and, and we as unholy individuals... Being contaminated with the sin that began in the Garden of Eden. 
contaminated with this gross sin that, that clings to everything we do. We have no power in our own being to make one another holy. Everything we do and everything we are is unholy by God's standards. But notice here in verse 12 that Paul adds two crucial words. He says, with fear and trembling, work out your own salvation. With fear and trembling, reverent fear, that is. Awestruck fear, respectable fear. This isn't some haunted house fear that you have. Paul's not saying, be scared of God. No, rather, Paul wants you to fear God just like you respect and fear your parents. You look up to them. You, you realize their authority in, the, in your life. And, and now he's revealing that because of this, we need to worship. We need to, to respectfully fear the Lord to progress in sanctification, to progress in this holiness, which is only made possible by the work of the Holy Spirit, as Paul shows in verse 13, where he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure so through Christ we have in one sense received our salvation right we have received this this earthly earthly salvation from sin that that Romans 6 11 tells us says count yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus and, and we're freed from the shackles of condemnation by you Asking God and repenting of your sin, you've received that salvation when Christ enters your life. Yet now, why, why are we being called to work out this salvation? Well, haven't we already received it? No, Paul's saying, work out this salvation knowing that it is God working in us for his good pleasure. For his good pleasure. He's not working in us to allow us to exemplify our lives. To, to make our names great. He's not doing this and helping us work out our salvation so that we may be prideful. Because our selfish ambition is to glorify ourselves. It's kind of like trying to do the dishes, clean your room before your parents get home so you can go to a friend's house. Hopefully they'll allow it since you did those things. That's our selfish ambition. And, and this actually connects perfectly to what we'll see later in chapter 3 from Paul where he says, not that I have already obtained this. Not that I have already obtained this, this being the inheritance of salvation, heaven, if you will. Not that I've obtained this but, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it, earthly salvation, my own. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. We're to practice and to demonstrate and, and to exhibit our obedience to the Father in order to continue in sanctification. So the question tonight, the big question I asked, I want this to kind of enter into that same idea. Are you living out your own salvation? That's the first big thing. Are you living out your own salvation? Because James 1.22 tells us, do not just be hearers of the word, but be doers also. And tonight, if you're not living out this salvation, if you're not demonstrating this beauty that Christ has instilled in you, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, 
if you're not exhibiting obedient works to him, I challenge you to sit and ponder whether or not you're truly saved. If you are in no right movement, one direct movement to work out this salvation, then are you truly saved? And, and for those of you who know you're saved, who trust Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, that says you're saved by grace, if you truly believe this, then I challenge you tonight to really question and see if idleness and laziness is sneaking up behind you without you even noticing. Because complacency is one of the greatest dangers in the Christian life and in the church. So I want you to realize tonight that the only way to work out your salvation is with fear and trembling before the Lord. Because it's he, it's him that's making you more sanctified. Just as Romans tells us, says for those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. It's his very work in your life that helps you work out your salvation. Verse 14. Go ahead and look with me. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Point number two tonight. Work out your salvation with childlike humility. Work out your salvation with childlike humility. So here we see in verse 14, Paul jumping back to the application he began in verse 3, right? Where he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. So Paul is jumping back into this concept of deliberately attacking our pride. Deliberately attacking our pride. And pride, I looked up the definition, is an excessive love of one's own excellence. An excessive love of one's own excellence. And John Calvin actually says that man's heart is an idol factory. An idol factory. That's all we do. And you know who we most idolize? Ourselves. Us. Because man's deadly and seductive heart desires to place oneself above everything and anyone else. And actually, if you look earlier in verse 6 of, this, of uh, the same chapter, notice who doesn't do that. Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a, of a servant. A servant. Though Christ was and is and always will be the second member of the triune God, he, he, he didn't hold that over anyone's head. He didn't stand up there and say, I'm the best. He could have. He could have. Rather, he lowered himself from every heavenly realm to dwell among the people he created. To dwell among us. The lowest there is. And if that were not enough, he, he perfectly fulfilled scripture. The prophecy in Genesis 3. Later on in the prophets, in the Davidic covenant. 
and then he fulfilled them. He did what he said he was going to do, and yet he still humbled himself. And honestly, your pride and, and your selfish ambition laughs in his very face. Because truth be told, we may not say this out loud, and we may not really think it that often, but in our deepest areas of pride, we look at the cross. We're like, yeah, Jesus did a good job. But I think I could have done it a little bit better. I think I could have made it a little bit easier on us. And your pride mocks him, just as the Roman soldiers did. Now, that being said, I, I don't just want to hound this on you guys tonight. Because Christ doesn't long for you guys to live a pride-free life. He doesn't long for that. He doesn't long to see how long or how many days you can go without thinking of yourself. Rather, he, he longs for you to be totally satisfied and filled up in him and his working in your life that the only single response you can give is humble adoration. The only response. That's what he longs for. That you be satisfied in him. Because humble adoration and humility is the opposite of pride. Like we, like we know, right? Humility is the opposite of pride. And, and only is humility produced when, when we realize the depravity and, and wretchedness of our own flesh. And not just that, but we realize the complete and total perfection of God above. The holiness of God. That's, that's when we see humility in action. And, and C.S. Lewis actually describes humility as not thinking less of yourself. Not thinking less of yourself. I don't want you to sit there tonight and just degrade yourself completely. That's not what C.S. Lewis is saying, and that's not what Paul is saying, and that's never what Christ said. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Thinking of yourself less. One day, I, I think I tried to count how many times I think of myself, and I, I don't remember the number because it was so high. I don't think I could count that high, right? Because Proverbs 22.4 tells us, humility is the fear of the Lord. And earlier on in Proverbs 11, he's, Solomon writes, with humility comes wisdom. With humility comes wisdom. Because pride is for the foolish. But look back at verse 15 here. Notice Paul calls the Philippians children of God. I really want to punch in on this. I, wanna, I want us to look at that. Children of God is what he calls the Philippians. And I want you to imagine for a moment just a beautiful example of a child, right? We see Jesus use this. We see now Paul call us children of God. Why, why a child? And going from this, we can all agree that a child really does, doesn't really bring anything to benefit a parent, right? We can all agree on that. A child can't drive. A child can't do laundry. A child can't get his own groceries. And really, a child is helpless. A child is needy. A child is dependent and reliant and trusting 
the father and mother of their life. So how is your humility shaping up when compared to a child's? Is it magnifying Christ? Is your humility God-honoring? Because if it's not, then how are we to live as lights in the, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation if you're so distracted by your greatness? So filled up with yourself. And, and we actually see the men that were closest to Jesus even debate this. The men that saw Jesus in action were wondering still, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And this is how we get Matthew 18, where Jesus rebukes his own disciples. So the disciples ask him, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And you know who Jesus called upon? He didn't call upon an adult or a teenager. No, he called upon a child. And he put him in the midst of them and said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So this leads back to the more important question, the one I started with. When Christ returns, will he see you, will he see you as a child dependent on the Father, on everything, with everything, or will he see a teenager who is in complete disregard for the word that could care less about this God thing, the one that created you. What will Christ see? Look with me at verse 16. Paul continues, Among whom you shine as lights in the world, world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Point number three tonight, labor toward the day of Christ. Labor toward the day of Christ. So this is going to be our point of application right here. So there's two ways we do this. Two ways we labor toward the day of Christ. First, cling to God's word. Cling to God's word. Notice Paul is again referencing Christ's return, right? And he's emphasizing this return to, to motivate the Philippians, to motivate the Philippians towards spiritual growth and the importance of it. And he, he actually refers to this as labor, that they may not labor in vain. And rather than working out your own salvation, just for the sake of working it out, Paul is leaning into these promises given by Jesus, that he will return. And you know what it does? It forces us to continue pursuing the lost, to working out this salvation, to serve the poor, to embrace the lowly. Paul is not doing this for his salvation. Notice this. He's not doing all this work for his salvation. He realizes he's been saved by grace and grace alone through Christ alone, right? That's what he realizes. But now he's saying there's more to do. And this is why in chapter 1 we see Paul make these bold charges that say, 
I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. Who began a good work in you. Because it's Christ who started that. The one who saved you. Not because of your excellent social status. Not because of your fantastic work ethic. And not because, not because of your brilliant social skills, right? But simply because you needed saving from your sin. Because you needed saving from the death that you're bringing upon yourself. That's why Christ began a good work in you. Praise will finally be given to the one who deserves it at the day of Christ. Honor will be given to him who is far greater than us. And you know where praise won't go? Praise won't go to you because of your worldly accomplishments. Honor won't be given to you for putting Jesus' name in your Instagram bio. And glory certainly won't be shown through you for being the best quote-unquote evangelizer for Christ like it's a competition. That's where it won't go. And if we're being honest here, praise God that this life isn't about you. Praise God it's not about you. Because if it was, it would be the furthest thing from holy. So I challenge you this week. Challenge you this week to serve those around you that aren't your friends. Serve those around you that aren't your friends. This sounds really simple. But, but even Christ did it. Christ did it first. He did it perfectly. He served the men who were in his life for three years, who he would later die for. He washed their feet, lowered himself to the dirt where the men's feet were. He even, he even washed the feet of the man that was going to betray him, the man that was going to put him on a cross for a couple bucks. He washed that man's feet as well. So we should too. Obedient to the point of death was Christ, thus we should be obedient in us working out our own salvation. So patiently, we cling to this word and hold it close to our hearts, right? While also serving the true word. And, and you might not have caught this, but holding to God's word, just as Paul says, word being the same term in the Greek as logos, was the same word used by John, one of, this, one of the disciples of Jesus within the inner circle, who used it in his own gospel. He says, in the beginning was the word, logos. And the word was with God, and the word was God. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So we cling to this word and we live for the true word until the end. The second way you labor toward the day of Christ is by asking yourself the hard spiritual questions. This one's a little more applicational as well. Ask yourself the hard spiritual questions. Look again at verse 17. 
Even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. So even if Paul dies, end all, say all, Paul's dead, he rejoices in having the opportunity to serve the Philippians with the gospel. Rejoices in that. And, and, and as believers, we've seen time and time again in the church, we tend to fall in and out of seasons of spiritual complacency, like I brought up earlier. Whether that's maybe we're not desiring growth at all, or maybe we're desiring it, but I don't really want to work for it. I just, I just want to be holy as it is. And we fall in these seasons. And, and D.A. Carson actually gives us a word of encouragement. A word to push us. He says, people do not drift toward holiness. I just want to stop there. You don't accidentally become holy. I wish you could. But that's not God's will. You don't accidentally become more holy. And then he says, apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, obedience to scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. But you know what we do drift to? We drift toward compromise and call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience and call it freedom. We drift toward superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of law, self-control, and call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves we have been liberated. Sin has contaminated everything in our lives. And it's without, just like D.A. Carson says, grace-driven efforts provided by God the Father. We do not accidentally become more holy. And by asking ourselves these hard spiritual questions, we can be drawn to both rejoice and be glad in our salvation and the saving grace of Christ. So when was the last time you reflected on the spiritual disciplines? Was it spring retreat? If it was, then master the restart tonight. Master the restart. Reflect on the spiritual disciplines. Is your time in God's word fruitful and purposeful? Or is it self-righteous and empty? Is, is your prayer life crying out to God in absolute need of mercy and grace every day? Or is it bold enough that I stand up here and call it prayer life if it's dead? And to, to neglect these very questions is to neglect the dire need for Christ. To neglect him and spit in his own face. By clinging to God's word and asking ourselves the hard spiritual questions, we can humbly trust and hope in the day of Christ's return. To be lights in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. So I want to give you guys a couple minutes here. Just like we've been doing to end all of these, I just want to give you a few minutes of meditation. That was a lot. 
but really reflect on those spiritual disciplines. Ask yourselves the hard spiritual questions and see how much humble adoration you've given the Father today. And then we'll pray it out, all right? Therefore, my beloved, just as you always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling and arguing so that you may be blameless and pure children of God who are faultless in a crooked generation, among whom you shine like lights in the world by holding firm to the word of life. Then I can boast in the day of Christ that I didn't run or labor for nothing. Lord, I pray that would be true of each and every one of us here. That we would work out our own fear, our own faith with fear and trembling. Lord, that we would be seeking and desiring to labor until the day you return, Jesus. And I pray that you would use the things that we have here to continue to encourage and equip that, convict us to do just that, to serve, to cling to your word, Lord, to seek you. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the way we can respond to it. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for the book of Philippians. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.